Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania, and we have Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Hey, Jeff. Good to be with you this evening. Chase Byers in this evening. Wow. Afternoon. Yeah, Chase Byers. You know, in in Latin American countries, in Central America, uh, it, this is a very important matter. You have to be precise. If it's 5.59, you don't say Buenas Noches, but if it's 6.01, you don't say Buenas Tardes. You say Buenas Noches. I mean, it it, it matters. Chase Byers in Fishers, Indiana. Well, you know, as they say, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> All right. We've got an interesting topic today. <laughs> yeah, well, let's just not go there, Joe. Um, let's, we've got an interesting topic today. One of the most fundamental teachings of, of, of the word of God is that uh, we have sinned and there has to be a sacrifice um, to, to make us righteous by, by taking away our sin. Um, and, and the Bible teaches that the way that works, First Peter chapter 2, Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree and thus he took the punishment for our sin. And so God can look at us and he can say, you know, Romans 3, um, I have been righteous. I've punished your sin. So God is just. But he can also say, but somebody else took that punishment for you. And, and so you can stand acquitted and righteous. And so we can have the hope of eternal life. Uh, but that has become a flashpoint among some. Um, they feel there are all kinds of unbiblical implications. They feel there are all kinds of conclusions that would lead to. Uh, and so they argue, no, Jesus did not take our sins in his body upon the tree. Or if he, if he did, it certainly doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. And so that's something we're going to talk a little bit about today. Anything else either of you guys want to say just by way of introducing the topic today? So maybe just to be clear, what's the first passage that you referenced there, Jeff? First Peter chapter two and about verse 20, is it 23? Yeah, 21 uh, to 23. 21. Okay, 21. All right. So I'll just, I'll just read the passage here in verse 21, uh, starting there. For hereunto were you called, because Christ all suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his body upon the tree, that we, having died unto sins, might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So he suffered, and thus we are healed, because he was bearing our sins in his body on the tree. You know, as I read through that, guys, one of the things that gets said is that if you say, he took our sins in his body, and and that's what w was happening when he went to the cross. Then you're saying Jesus was a sinner. That's one of the things people will say. And yet Peter says he bore our sins in his body, and Peter says he did no sin. So if Peter can put those two ideas together and see them as non-contradictory, I don't know why we can't. But anyway. Yeah. And, so and maybe... The, just to, to key off of that idea, if I might. So in verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return when he suffered. I think that's a key word for Peter's uh, epistle because we yes. have that very idea of suffering then stated again in chapter 3, 18 and 4, 1 
and uh, 4.13. But when we look at this idea of suffering then, especially 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And so if Peter can say that Jesus bore our sins in his body, that he was just in doing that for the unjust, then maybe it means something different, but that is what it says. And so we have to start with that understanding. If we if we agree that the Bible is God's word, we have to say that language is okay. Yeah. He suffered for you. What's that about? Yeah. Um, so, you know, go ahead. To take that argument further. So their argument, from my understanding, is the hang-up, at least. Jesus cannot be the atonement for sins if he takes sin on himself. And you're suggesting here, Jeff, that because in verse 22, Peter associates these two things we can associate those two things as well, right? I'm That's specifically kind of your saying because Peter puts together the fact that Jesus did no sin and he bore our sin in his body. It's entirely possible for Jesus to take our sin in his body without Jesus himself becoming a sinner. Um, so let, let's take, for instance, then the Old Testament sacrifices, because I mm -hmm. think that's a really big, important piece of this, just kind of as an overview. I don't know how deep you guys want to get into this. But we understand in Leviticus 1, for instance, whenever it's introducing us to the idea where they'll lay their hands on the animal. And really, the idea there, from my understanding, it's not just like a, a mere touch, but a real almost embrace of the animal as it's getting passed off to be sacrificed. There is, I think, without a doubt, whenever the transfer of sin happens, we're not saying that now it's that goat that was the one that went out and slept with your neighbor's wife. Right. That we're not so mad, right? right? And I think people understand it in the Old Testament. They go, yeah, yeah, I understand you're not saying that. But I think when you pull it over here to the Old Testament or to the New Testament, that gets lost on people. Now they assume we're saying, well, now you're saying that Jesus is the one who went out and did that sin that you committed. So do you guys see the point I'm making? Yeah, no, I, exactly. You're, you, you're replying to this notion that if Jesus took our sins in his own body, then somehow he's he's guilty of having done these terrible things. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. He's a liar. And what you're pointing out is that they they laid the sins on the, the head of the goat, and yet that didn't mean the, the, the goat was the one that could have committed adultery with somebody's wife or something. You know, and just to drive home that imagery, I, I tell you pretty quickly, I think we need to go to Isaiah 53 because that's the text behind 1 Peter chapter 2. But, but before we do that, just to develop this picture in the Old Testament that you're alluding to, Chase, in Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 3, repeatedly, you see that when an, an individual brought a goat for a, a burnt offering or whatever, and he's going to offer this as a sacrifice, uh, he, he, the worshiper, lays his hands on the head of the goat. And I actually think it would be helpful to read the language in Leviticus chapter 1 and then Leviticus 16. The language in Leviticus 1 and verse 3 is, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. 
for the worshiper to be accepted, there has to be a connection between this man and this sacrifice. And then it says in verse four, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So this, so this animal, it's not just that the animal is going to die. It's going to be that the animal dies on behalf of this man. So what's the part about laying the hands on the head of the animal? Well, partly it is to make that connection between the worshiper and and the animal being offered. But Leviticus 16 on the day of atonement, the language is very explicit. Two goats, one goat is killed. One goat is sent away into the wilderness. And for what it's worth, I see those two both together as pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, There are two things. Jesus dies, but in, in being a sacrifice for our sin, he removes our sins, as the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. And that's illustrated by the goat that goes away into the wilderness. And here's how that works. Leviticus 16, 21, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them, the sins and the iniquities, on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Clearly, the imagery of putting the hands on the head of the goat was to say, my sins are being put on this goat. Now, obviously, there's some figurative language here. Sin is not something I can pull out of my pocket and set it on a goat's head and so on. But the idea is this goat is representing uh, my sins being removed from me because I put them on the goat. And uh, and that that's God's will. That's God's instruction. And it foreshadows the sacrifice of Jesus, where our sins are laid on Jesus. And then he suffers for us. So, right. so thoughts about that? Fact, you, go ahead. Well, just exploring that last part, that he suffers for us. The other thing that's important to establish with this is that sin equals death. That That is the just yeah. penalty right. for sin. Right. And I mean, how how biblically foundational is it? You think about Genesis 2, and what does God say? For in the day you eat of this, what's going to happen? You will die. Mm-hmm. And they do. They do die. And so from page one of the Bible, it's it's equating this idea of, of disobedience and sin with death. Mm-hmm. And that is so consistent when you, you know, draw that out through the whole Bible. So when you get to these sacrifices in Leviticus, the the worshiper, the one bringing this animal, there is this symbol of, okay, I should have died for my sin, but this thing is going to die for my sin instead. Is that that makes sense? That that's not that hard to understand. And it's not just that it makes sense. It is in the Bible. We we read that God is love, but we also read that God is righteous. And yes, and in this. In this idea of our sins being punished in someone else's suffering, who, who, who willingly takes our place, by the way, that's important. What we see is our sin is punished. And one of the things that I think people who have problems with this fail to realize is when they say, no, Jesus did not bear our sins in his body. He was not punished for our sins. They end up with our sins not being punished. 
and and thus they end up with a God who is willing just to kind of look the other way, just say, well, I know you sin, but I'm just going to ignore it. And they undermine the righteousness, the justice of God. Uh, and, and, and I think let's look at Isaiah 53 and then let's look at Romans 3 and there's some other things we need to do today. But I think that we need to see these fundamental passages which lay out a picture that is certainly a picture of, God, of G- Jesus taking our sins in himself and, and suffering for our sins and that that points to God's justice. Um, I, I, think, I think we probably should go to Isaiah 53 and then there's several other things that we have to talk about. One of you guys want to take yes. us over to Isaiah 53? Sure. Want to read what, seven through nine maybe? Or what, what do you have? Yeah, mind? you can read through it. You can pick out. There's just so much in Isaiah 53, but let's let's so, highlight, certainly highlight the things we need to highlight here. So how about, let, let, me, let me go back to verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right there. Up. That the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But keep right. going. Yeah, I mean, it's it's every single sentence, every phrase is used there makes that the same point. Yeah. Uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was the seat found in his mouth. And so again, you know, just not—it's not just said once or twice, but he—he he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Um, uh, the Lord laid on him uh, the iniquity of us all. Um, uh, and then uh, in verse uh, um, uh, eight, the transgressions, uh, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Mm-hmm. And then, but in, in the midst of all of that, he, he is proclaimed innocent. Right. And so um, he is that perfect, pure sacrifice that lamb of God, um, and yet these are the things that God says was was occurring on the cross. And, And when you get to verses 10 and 11, I think what we see there is that, um, in his taking in his suffering for our sins, in his taking the punishment on the cross for our sins, for what we've done, um, justice is satisfied. So you see in verse 11, as the result of the anguish of his soul, which I take to be uh, Jesus' soul, Jesus' suffering, um, he will see it and be satisfied. The father can say, okay, it's done. Um, or, or even, I don't like the New American Standard translation in verse 10, the way it says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him as if the father finds some sick delight in watching somebody else suffer. 
but willing. He was willing to have the son suffer this because then the penalty has been paid. Um, there's satisfaction, so to speak. You know, we could skip. People will, will pick at verse 4, and they'll try to um, evade the implications of verse 4. And we could just skip verse 4 because it says it so many times in this chapter that he was suffering for our sins. But here's what they'll say. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, which, I mean, absolutely, unambiguously says what was ours he took. But they'll they'll make note that that's quoted in, in Matthew chapter 8. And yeah, I'm glad you brought that. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 8 in connection with Jesus taking our suffering on himself by healing people of their physical maladies, which is true. But but keep in mind that whenever Jesus healed the blind, there was a spiritual lesson there. Uh, he's the one who can give spiritual sight. When, when he gave hearing to the deaf, when he made the, the lame be able to walk, there's a spiritual the lepers. lesson. The lepers, when he cleanses the lepers, there's a spiritual lesson there. And we could take time and develop that thought, but it is developed in the Gospels plainly. And, and so when he takes the maladies of the people upon himself by curing them of their physical ailments, there's a spiritual lesson there. He is taking upon himself the spiritual ailments of the people and curing us of those things. So I, you know, but now if somebody wants to quibble about that, then just look at the rest of Isaiah 53. Yeah, Chase. So here's what I think they would say, or I'm, I'm really trying to put myself in their shoes. So, all right, this language is clearly prophesying about Jesus. It's clearly foreseeing what happens to him on the cross. Yeah. So would they be saying the punishment that Jesus received was simply a Roman crucifixion? That's all he bore for us. Is that what they would say? I don't know what that means if they say, he bore for us a Roman crucifixion. In what sense was it for us? Here's how, here's how yeah. Peter says it was for us. You know, Peter, Peter says it was, now remember first Peter two, he is Peter's got Isaiah 53 clearly in mind. As you go through first Peter chapter two, uh, he talks about neither was guile found in his mouth. Isaiah 53 in verse nine says there was no deceit in his mouth. Um, when, when he says, um, oh, what are all the phrases in, in first Peter two, where he's alluding back to, oh, how about verse 25? You were going astray like sheep. Um, and, and I'm, I'm losing my reference in first Peter or in Isaiah 53. Uh, yeah. Verse seven, like sheep. Um, hmm, uh, well, I guess in Isaiah 53, verse seven, six, verse six. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. Like all of us like sheep have gone astray um, in, in verse seven, when he was silent before his shearers and Peter talks about the fact that um, he uh, did not revile, did not revile in return for reviling. Um the reference to his being silent when being accused. Peter is, is clearly looking at Isaiah 53 as he, as he talks about this. And then what Peter says is he, who his own self, this is verse 24, bear our sins in his body 
up on the tree. Now, somebody says, well, he just took a Roman crucifixion for us. In what sense was it for us? Peter says it was he was bearing our sins in his yeah. body on the tree. So I, I guess I found a better way to ask my question. My question then would be, why does Jesus have to go through the suffering on the cross if God can just take the sins away? If they don't have to be punished, but he can just take them away. What in the world is the point of the cross at that point? That's what I'm confused on their viewpoint as. Is mm -hmm. like, how would they answer that? I, I don't think they understand. I, th I think people who have a problem with this don't understand that God doesn't just take our sins away. I don't think they understand that the Bible paints a picture of a God who is just and is going to punish our sin one way or the other. He's either going to punish our sin in us or he's going to punish our sin in Jesus. And Which for those so of us who... Huh? Sorry, I interrupted. No, go ahead. It's just fascinating to me that that's the position they take because people who normally take that position are normally really quick to point out the wrath of God. It, it just it's a very inconsistent argument. All right. Now, um there's several things we, we need to do here. Look, look, um go ahead, Joe. Well, if I, if I can just interject here a little bit and uh, I hope I'm not muddying the waters, um uh, but it, this is not just a Roman crucifixion. Psalm 22 makes that abundantly clear. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening on the cross is, is, is having some effect. What, whatever we're going to say Psalm 22 and verse 1 means, it means something as Jesus is saying this to the Father. And, and so I, I don't know that I fully comprehend the totality of Psalm 22.1, but those are the words of Jesus. And uh, we, we have to understand that he is applying Psalm 22 verses 1 through 21 in some fashion to himself, as well as Psalm 22 has multiple references to uh, the, the crucifixion. And so the crucifixion is and, not between Jesus and the Romans. It is it is dealing with God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A couple it with a with the night or the events leading up to the crucifixion, sweat drops like blood, along with Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. I don't know. You think about the cup of God's wrath that's talked about in Jeremiah, and there is something much deeper going on on the nights leading up to his crucifixion than just fearing a a Roman a Roman crucifixion that he is going to suffer with two others. Now, I'm not, I'm not at all downplaying how hard a Roman crucifixion would be. That, that's not at all what I'm trying to do. But I am suggesting the scriptures seem to reveal that there was something even weightier on Jesus than just a Roman crucifixion. But what would make sense to me is the weight of all this, the sin of the world on his shoulders. Let me call attention to two passages. The first one is Mark 10, 45, and the second one is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And we must get to 2 Corinthians 5, 21 because it, it is inescapable, and yet some people think they have found an escape. And so we need to talk about the escape they think they found. But first of all, Mark 10, verse 45 where it says, for the Son of Man also came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. A mm -hmm. ransom for many. And the word translated for here is the word that 
has the idea of in place of, which is the idea of a ransom. If, if your daughter's kidnapped and you pay the kidnappers uh, $100,000 and they give your daughter back, the money takes the place of your daughter, so to speak, your daughter's life. Jesus gave his life as the ransom in place of, of ours being destroyed, ours being taken. That's a substitution idea. Um, and, and then there's 2 Corinthians 5. And, and this passage is, of course, inescapable, and yet some folks think they found an escape. So let's take a look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 21, let's just say. Uh, well, we should read 20 and 21 together. Paul says, we are ambassadors, therefore, on behalf of Christ, as though God were entreating by us, we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be ye reconciled to God. Okay, so that's, we need to be reconciled to God. We're at odds with God because of our sin. We need to be reconciled. And that can happen through Jesus. Verse 21, him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. So he takes our sin, he becomes our sin, being punished on the cross, and we become the righteousness of God. There are various things in the Bible that, that highlight this. The, the bronze serpent, the serpent in the wilderness, who is biting the people, or the, the very, the, the, not the bronze serpent wasn't biting the people. The serpents were biting the people, bringing death, and they could look to the likeness of the things that were biting them, the bronze serpent, and they could live. And Jesus makes that parallel to himself in John chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's the parallel? The parallel is the thing that bites us is sin and it results in death. And we can look to our sin lifted up on the cross in Jesus and we can be saved. So that that's the idea. He was made to be sin on our behalf. That's plain. But Chase, Joe, there is an argument that is made whereby people think they can escape the implications of this passage. What's the argument? So uh, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and if this doesn't make sense with me and my viewpoint, I might find it interesting that one of my footnotes says, or be a sin offering. So the mm -hmm. passage would then read in verse 21, he made the one who did not know sin to be a sin offering for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, they make a distinction between, all right, he became sin, Versus now he's just a sin offering, just like all the stuff back in the Old Testament, right? He, yeah, so they say he was not made to be sin. He was just made to be a sacrifice for sin. And, of course, then you say, well, what, what does that mean, a sacrifice for sin? But let's just stop right here and say, wait a minute. Can this be translated sin offering? Or can this be translated sacrifice for sin rather than sin, as the footnote there that you have might suggest? And so... The fact is, in the Old Testament, there's a word that, is, that often means sin that in some contexts is being used for the offering for sin. And if you look up in Brown, Driver, and Briggs, the, the lexicon of Hebrew, the, uh, the language of the Old Testament, you look up this word and it will tell you some, a lot of times it means sin, but in some passages, it's being used to mean sin offering. It's kind of like, I don't know, somebody call it metonymy or what, but they'll actually give you a category of usages where 
the word should be translated sin offering or sacrifice for sin. The interesting thing is, when you come to the language of the New Testament and you look at the standard lexicon of the New Testament, um, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, and Danker, or actually now it's Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich, um, and you look up the word for sin, you don't find a category where the word can mean sin offering. But people will make an argument, and here's the argument. They say, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, look at Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 8, it says, saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings, and this translation says, sacrifices for sin. Thou wouldst Mine not. Says sin. Yours says what? Sin offering? Yeah, same thing. Mm -hmm. Sacrifices for sin, sin offering. Do you have any italics? Does the translation you're looking at use italics, Chase? So this no. one does. And so where it says sacrifices for sin, it puts the word sacrifices in italics. And that's because the okay. Greek text here, all the Greek text says is sin. So if you were just looking at the Greek text, it would say very literally sacrifices mm -hmm. and offerings and whole burnt offerings and concerning sin. So there's harmatia then, right? Yeah. So, so it doesn't have a word for offering or sacrifice right there with the word for sin. It just says, it just says, um, and I'm glancing back, it just says concerning sin. And so they say, well, obviously here, and it's true, obviously here the writer is talking about sacrifices concerning sin. And the word sacrifices is implied. He says concerning sin, so it's something concerning sin. Well, what is it? It's sacrifices concerning sin. He's already mentioned sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings. And so now he uses this phrase concerning sin, sacrifices concerning sin, or you could say sin offerings. So they will argue, see here, you just have the word sin, and it means sin sacrifice. And so then they'll transfer that back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. The problem is they're overlooking the fact that it doesn't just say sin. It says concerning sin. And when you say concerning sin, there's obviously something implied that is pertaining to sin, that is concerning sin. So the writer here tells you, I'm not talking about sin itself, I'm talking about something concerning sin, something pertaining to sin. And so it's implicit that he's talking about a sacrifice for sin in the context. The thing is, back in 2 Corinthians 5.21, when it says, him who knew no sin, he made to be sin, it doesn't say he made to be something pertaining to sin. It doesn't do that. It doesn't have the preposition that it has here in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 8. And so it is wholly gratuitous to grab Hebrews 10, 8 and say, well, it, it's talking about something pertaining to sin there, and therefore it also is in 2 Corinthians 5, when the very thing that makes it pertaining to sin is a preposition in Hebrews 10, 8 that doesn't exist in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. What, and what was that preposition again? Perit. Perit, P-E-R-I. And what English translation are you reading from? Well, I'm reading here from the American Standard. Um, you could read from just about any translation, and it's so, going to say so something. What, I'm sorry, what preposition was it in English? 
Well, it's translated for in this particular translation. Where it okay, says, I see it now. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And various translations might translate it various ways. You could say yeah. concerning or pertaining to or yeah. whatever. Yeah, the NIV doesn't really help with that. I no. don't like the way it translates it. So, so the point it's is, a, the 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 way the way people think they can escape the implications, the, the clear teaching is Second Corinthians five twenty one, where it says he was made to be sin. They think they can escape that by saying, well, it really doesn't mean he was made to be sin. It may, means he was made to be a sacrifice concerning sin or a sin sacrifice, and they base that on Hebrews ten eight. But 10.8 is different. Hebrews 10.8 is different. It has a preposition, something concerning, something pertaining to sin. So, yeah. so let me add to that. So also, you look at the context. I mean, not even having to look at the Greek, but mm-hmm. looking at the context of the yeah. passage, I think, is helpful. Yeah. So right. very clearly, what would you lump into a, into a sacrifice? Well, I don't know. How about delight in sacrifices, offerings, and whole burnt offerings? Mm-hmm. So it's in the context talking about sacrifices obviously in 10 obviously but over in in second corinthians uh five he's contrasting the uh let me get my eyes back on it sorry um he's contrasting us uh in the righteousness of god with christ becoming sin for us so sin offering would take away from the point that paul is making or it, it wouldn't make sense and so I think the context makes it clear that he means sin, just even from looking at the English. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, obviously in 2 Corinthians 5, the point is we're reconciled to Christ because of something that happened. He was made to be something. What was he made to be? If somehow you manage to convince yourself that what he's saying is he was made to be a sacrifice for sin, then you have to say, well, how does that reconcile us? How does what What's the meaning of sacrifice for sin? And... What these people have, they have a very vague, nebulous notion of of what sacrifice for means. If Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sin, they just make it out to be something like, well, he he gave himself up, uh, and so he suffered, and that's a good example. And we so we're supposed to look at that good example and say, wow, that was really kind of him. Therefore, I believe in him, and therefore I'm saved. But what they miss is the significance of Jesus' sacrifice is exactly what Peter says. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. The very idea is Romans 3, Romans 3, where Paul argues that in Jesus being a propitiation, it enabled God to be two things. Verse 26, himself just, number one, and number two, the justifier of him that has faith in Jesus. So that's the conundrum. How in the world can God justify us who are sinners, which would be an unjust thing? So how can he do that and himself be just? And Mm -hmm. Paul says, well, the conundrum is solved because Jesus is a propitiation. He takes our sins in his body on the tree, pays the price. He is punished for our sins. Is God just? Our sins have been punished. Can we be justified? We are justified. So let's let's do what I've often seen people do as they consider our viewpoint. Let's press our conclusions as far as we can. All right. And I want to see Jeff and Joe how you all respond to things like this. All right, guys. So if Jesus became sin in your all's viewpoint and he has 
taken on our sin and God has punished that sin, mm -hmm. then my understanding is the only punishment there is for sin is to go to hell. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that Jesus went to hell? Nope. Well, why not? You have to be saved. <laughs> the thing the thing about some somebody stepping in as a substitute, um, it's human reasoning that says there has to be a quantitative equivalence. Um, let me let me illustrate this. So somebody's arguing basically, if Jesus is a substitute, if he suffers as a substitute, then he has to suffer exactly what we would have suffered. He has to be condemned, condemned eternally to hell because that's what would have happened to us. That's kind of the argument, right? Mm -hmm. okay. That's the argument that assumes from human reasoning there has to be a quantitative equivalence. I'll call your attention to 2 Samuel chapter 21. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, there's a famine and David's wondering, what's going on? Why is there this famine? And it turns out it's a consequence of the fact that when Saul was king, he had tried to eradicate the Gibeonites, and that was in violation of the covenant that had been made between the Israelites and the, and the Gibeonites when the Gibeonites had deceived the Israelites way back in the book of Joshua. And so they had entered into an agreement whereby the Israelites would not destroy the Gibeonites. And um, but then Saul had tried to do that. And so when this becomes clear that that's what's going on in Second Samuel 21, um, David says in verse four, um, I'll do for you whatever you say. What, what do we need to do to make this right? So they said to the king in verse five, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen Lord. And the king said, I'll give them. So, so they take seven of Saul's descendants and put them to death in exchange for however many of the Gibeonites Saul had killed. Does anybody argue that it was there were only seven Gibeonites that Saul had killed? That's not the point. The point is, we're going to take seven. Seven is a, is, a, is a prominent number in the Bible, and kind of an idea of completeness. This will represent the whole thing. Take seven of the Saul, sons of Saul, put them to death in exchange for however many of the Gibeonites Saul killed, and that was satisfactory. It just illustrates the point that when one thing stands in place for another, it does not have to be numerical equivalence or quantitative equivalence. If it's accepted as a substitute, it's accepted. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I wonder, feel free to correct me on, on any of this. Um, thinking about Romans, the sixth chapter, Jesus died for us. He died physically for us. He died on the cross. He took our sins. That's mm -hmm. what the that's the that's Bible language. That's not right. Joe Jeff Chase language. That's Bible language. Right. We we can't we, we can't argue with God there. Right. Um, and so maybe picking up in verse seven, uh, he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse eight. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Mm -hmm death no longer has dominion over him. Mm -hmm. And so part of the equation 
of Jesus being the just, dying for the justifier, because he was just, because he was righteous, because he was innocent, because he was holy, death could not keep him. And so he defeated death at that same moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's at least in part an answer to, to Chase's yeah. objection. Jeff, you sort of dealt with, well, that's not the that's not the 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 right definition of that, but maybe this text helps us to see here is what happened. Right. He he died physically, mm -hmm. but because of who he is and his character, death could not hold him. So uh, he was raised on the third day. Yep. Um, and so th there is not that uh, that equivalence, whatever that fancy term that, that Jeff used a minute ago. Um, quantitative equivalence. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I just call that QE, but anyway. Um, uh, so, well, I, I've um, read it in your scholarly papers. I've seen that abbreviation a time or two, Jill. It, uh, we're teasing you, Jeff, but it is really helpful to hear that and to, to, to make note of how that isn't a biblical necessity. Um, uh, you, you have that uh, teaching right there in Samuel uh, that shows us that concept. In Genesis chapter 22, when the ram is offered in the place of Isaac, I mean, that's the language. I think it's verse 17. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the place of Isaac, it's a substitute. Oh. But oh. I don't think anybody would have said that the ram was equivalent to Isaac. I, you, you would none of, need, Both of you have children, and neither of you would say that any animal is equivalent to your child. The, the Passover lamb... Um, in the Exodus, the Passover lamb took the place of the firstborn son. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't take a lot to to figure that out. I mean, that's the whole Joe, point. Joe looked had a look on his face. It looked like he was reconsidering that point and thinking of one of his offspring and saying, "Is there really a difference?" <laughs> I, I, I was I was trying to you know I'm going. I have six kids. It takes me a while to work through every one of them. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, no, you know, that that's that's exactly right. Um, uh, but, but Christ, because of him being who he is, he defeated death simultaneously. Um, uh, you know, and so we talk about the Bible talks about the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Um, uh, those are that, that is an event. That's the, the gospel. First Corinthians 15. You want to speculate? We've got three minutes left. You want to spend three minutes speculating as to why people have a hard time accepting this? Why people feel the need to say he did not? He he. They're all. We've already addressed the idea that they say, well, that would make Jesus a sinner, and and we've shown that that's just an error, and th and that's just that's just reasoning on their part, saying, well, if that's true, then and their if uh -huh. then is just fallacious. They're assuming that would make Jesus guilty of adultery. And that's just an unwarranted assumption. They have no right to make that assumption. Peter didn't make that assumption. I'm going to go with Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, rather than the people who make that assumption. But why else do they feel the need to, to take this view? I, I think it comes from almost a place of arrogance sometimes, um, in all honesty. I, I think it comes from a place of, I have to be able to know everything there is to know about this. And I should, I deserve answers on this. And if there's any inconsistencies here, then it's not worth believing. And it's a lack of ability to trust God, trust his promises, trust his word, and be able to accept the way the Bible says things 
even if in our human minds, we can't fully comprehend the beauty and mystery of it. And I think the cross is one of those places where we're never going to be able to fully understand the, the, the mystery behind God having a son that he sent to die for mankind. It, it blows my mind every day. And I think there are some Christians who cannot accept not knowing every single answer. I think that's part of it. So we've got a viewer who asked, so why don't people understand the concept, though? And so we're, we're trying to, to speculate a little bit about that as to why people have a problem with this. Yeah. But we're out of time. Yeah. Jim, I, I would just uh, say that, you know, some people just can't see as clearly as you can on, on these points. <laughs> uh, you, you, you can clearly see this. I, I, well, I guess we're out of time. All right. Uh, well, thanks for the discussion, guys. Uh, hopefully it'll be profitable to some people. And uh, Lord willing, uh, we'll be able to join you again next week and uh, see you here on Bible Quest next Wednesday afternoon.